0: Welcome to Pod Rocket, a podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, ever tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at logrocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Johnny Borsico. Johnny joined us on Pod back in 2022, and he's coming on again today to give us an update on what has been happening with Go in the past year. And we're going to delve into his thoughts on the world of development today. Welcome to the podcast, Johnny. Thank you. It's good to be back. If we could just like circle back to the last podcast, maybe we could get into a little bit about why you love Go so much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because when I think back of all the technologies that I've used over the years and I've been in the tech industry for close to 25 years now, if not more, whenever I think back of all technologies that I've I've touch that I've come into my world, my ecosystem and with the tooling I use to to solve problems and the solutions I've built over the years. And whenever I think back, I'm like, okay, maybe it's recency bias, I don't know. But whenever I think about the pleasure I've had, right, building these systems and programming, that 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 pleasure I've experienced with Go, I don't think I've experienced the same thing with other technologies, other programming languages. And the, the closest thing to that has been Ruby, which I did a ton of prior to adopting Go. And that's because Ruby set out to be that language that sort of makes it fun and you know, is designed for the programmer's sort of enjoyment, right? Ruby goes out of its way to make things like a pleasure to use, whereby that was not Go's primary concern, so to speak. But interestingly enough, I believe they accomplished that even though that wasn't a goal of the language. I think they, by trying to make the language as simple as possible, I think they achieved that anyway without going out of their way to provide some shortcuts and different ways to s- express the same thing. So when I think about you know, what do I, why do I love Go so much? And I think back, I'm, I've worked on, at this point, I've worked on systems large and small Within the world of Go and in uh, some projects that are so big and massive, you dread going into them because you're like, oh, man, I can't hold all of these things in my head. There's just so much going on. But even in the world in, in, with Go, even with such sort of gargantuan projects and lots of things going on, because I'm able to easily navigate the code base, the patterns are familiar there in the idioms, right? That that Go developers adopt early on in their learning journey, like I see that repeated over and over again. So it becomes easier. So I, I can use Go as a, the fact that I'm using Go sort of falls to the background and allows me to just focus on the problem, focus on the business logic. Right? I'm not trying to fight the language itself. I think, which is really why to this day I still really like working with Go. And if I if I can help it, I'll probably retire on it.
0: <laughs> that is quite the vouch for. The developer experience and even beyond that how it sounds like it enables you in your career and how you said it has enabled others in their careers and one thing you pointed out you were like they're the people who helped create go maybe did not intend to have such a great usability be its outcome but that happened anyway do you think that was forefront of design because of the initial creators of the language or was that because of the community that came in and sort of branched it out and it was the vibe, how people wanted to contribute?
1: The, I think it's twofold. The creatives of the language, I and, and having heard at least one of them, or two of them talk, and those that, that now maintain the language, right, the, the creators of the language have moved on to other things. But the people who maintain the language, the Go team and and some of these folks are very prominent and they show up at Go conferences and speak and things like that. So when I think back on, on some of the creators talks, which are still available on YouTube and easily accessible and thinking about. Some of the more recent talks from the people who actually actively maintain Go and from other prominent members that are not necessarily on the Go team, but also contribute to the Go's community, its library ecosystem and everything else. And really, it's like twofold. One, the creator set out to create a simple language that could scale to many developers on a the team. Right? They wanted something that you didn't have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to wrap your head around. Allow Once you're familiar with the language, allow it to fall to the background so that you can actually focus on the problem at hand. That was something they strove for. The other half of that was it came in the form of the community surfacing idioms and patterns that work, and some do's and don'ts, right. Some things, obviously, the language guides you a particular way like that a particular way that it wants to be used, right, which is why I always tell folks, look, when you're coming in to go, leave preconceptions and things that you're familiar with from other programming languages. leave these things at the door right? because you're going to come into Go, you have to unlearn some things and some things that you you're used to in other languages, you have to leave those expectations behind because Go is going to lead you down a particular path right? and the moment I stop fighting Go, the moment I stop trying to write gooby, which is what I which is what I call you basically when you're going from Ruby or some other language like alpha, Gooby, Python. Uh, <laughs> this is just why when you're trying to bring some idioms from other programming languages into the world of Go, you quickly realize, okay, I'm doing something wrong, right? Maybe I should follow the idioms and I should read some blog posts, watch some YouTube videos from, from folks that are reputable within the community. And you start seeing, oh, okay, now I understand why, right, things are seemingly all right easier to grok and understand when I use the language that particular way. So it's like twofold. It was the goal of the language creators to make it simple. And it was the community and the idioms and the patterns that have emerged since then and continue to emerge to this day, right? That that those two facets make it that a combination leads to to, to what I'm talking about, that, that love for goal, because it gives me both sides of, of those benefits.
0: It, it must be amazing to see that symbiotic relationship emerge. The creators did something right if it allows that relationship to emerge. They really built a platform that lets that happen. I guess it can make me excited about what idioms are going to emerge in the future as the language continues to get built out. Mm-hmm. Right before we kind of wrap or step into some new things that are coming out with Go, what do you have to say to the people who are wanting to get into a lower level language? Maybe they've only been tooling with like TypeScript, for example, they want to write some concurrent processes and they Go into the internet and they search up. I want to look at some languages that are backed by Google, and they see carbon and go. What do you have to say to the folks who maybe are eyeing carbon? So let me take a let me take a sort of ten thousand foot view, right? So
1: th- the recommendation I can give, regardless of the language people are evaluating today, if you are looking for if you are looking for a low level sort of systems programming language, right? Right now, I can't recommend Rust enough for that I think the design of the language the things that were a priority for the designers of the language and what the community is doing with that language the kinds of problems they're solving like the whole new way of thinking about programs like with a, with a strong sort of a memory management and borrow checker and all these things, like the, these capabilities are doing away with a whole class of problems that it pre-existed with the C++ days and even some, some of the C stuff. It's, if you're looking for that low-level raw performance dealing with low-level system stuff and, and you have a choice between something like C or C++ and, and versus Rust, I would encourage people to go the Rust route. Now, why would I recommend Rust over Go or anything else? Well, that's because of the suitability for that particular language and the kinds of problems the community is so coalescing around, right? Now, could you use Rust to write network services kind of like the way those things are, the bread and butter for the Go world? Absolutely, right? There are, there are projects, there are frameworks within that community that have that are emerging that are tailored for that kind of a use case. but. That that world of building networked applications and services and message queues and distributed systems and, and, and cloud native applications, I think that will, that realm still is very much dominated by Go, right? You're talking systems like Kubernetes and NATs and and all these kind of highly distributed, highly concurrent systems, like that is by far dominated by Go. It could be that it's just timing. Go came at the right time. It was there at the right place. And some of the te- early technology decisions, technologies that people take for granted now operating cloud infrastructure could be the timing. Had that done been done at a different time, who knows? Maybe all of that would stuff would have been supported by and said. Who knows? But I think Go supremely dominates in that space still. But it's not one or the other, right? You have a choice, right? And if you're ever in a sort of enviable position of making like such a low-level decision, such a language choice for a particular venture, a new project, new company, whatever it is, that doesn't happen often for most of us, right? A lot of time we come into a you know a company, or these decisions have already been made for us. We just have to fall in line, and follow the process, follow the patterns. But if you're ever in a position where you get to pick, or if you're trying to do a sort of a side project, you get to try different languages. Maybe you're coming from the TypeScript world. Again, whatever language you're coming from, you kind of leave your expectations at the door, and then try to embrace whichever ecosystem whichever language ecosystem you dive into, try to embrace their patterns, their way to do things. Leave your, their own, own way of thinking out the door, at least until you develop enough of an understanding, enough of commonality, the ways people build systems, right? And regardless of what the language syntax does, people are going to use the technology in a particular way. Learn what the ways are, and then start to make your informed decisions that, mm, I like that, sp- that pattern, I don't like that pattern, or heck, I like this language, I don't like this language, for these particular use cases.
0: Right on. And what's one example of, I I I want to pick on like TypeScript in particular because it's one of the most used languages out there, but like choose anything if you have a good example. But I want to like double click on one example of one of these idioms you see people bringing into Go that really hasn't worked that well that they then left behind and accepted like the new way to do it and went over that bridge.
1: One, the one that immediately comes to mind is, you know, a lot of people come to go expecting to have exception handling. <laughs> They're like, where's my try-catch? Where's my family? Where are all these things that I'm familiar with and from other languages? And like, I, I don't do TypeScript day-to-day, but I but I would imagine that it has some sort of ex- exception handling capability. You can bubble up errors and let something else handle it up the stack or whatnot. For the world of Ruby, I know it has, you know, uh, trying capabilities and exception handling in these things. Certainly the Java ecosystem has that. I mean, and pretty much virtually all recent modern programming languages have some sort of exception handling capability, right? You bubble up an error, you let something else up the stack handle it, or you try to handle it locally or what, whatnot. So these things, people are coming into the world of Go expecting to to have these kinds of capabilities, and they realize, okay... Go's error handling, which I, when I say error handling, exception handling, I'm being very nuanced here and I want to call out the attention to the nuance, right? Go does have error handling, it just doesn't have exception handling. So when I say exceptions, I mean you throw an error, something else catches it and does something with it. Go forces you to treat your errors as values right then and there. Which is why you see the, the pattern <laughs> people People tend to sort of hate when they first see it if error not nil everywhere in, the, in your code base. Like they they see that, and like, oh, why is this? Why is it, what is all this noise? Why is every interaction to some subsystem capturing an error return? And is this error not nil check all over the place? What is that? And that's the first thing that sort of strikes people in it because it struck me and I thought it was weird. I'm like, why is there no exception handling? And then I realized, okay, go treat errors as values like any other value of a given type, right, in your program. It just forces you to deal with the consequences of the possibility of an error right then and there. And I've, I think I've even seen papers, right, written, sort of a university research papers written on, not go specifically, but on on the value of handling your errors at the time uh, at the call site. Basically, when you make a call to something, you use maybe it's RPC, maybe it's whatever it is, some other part of your system. You make a call and you handle, you're forced to think about the possibility that something might have gone wrong, right, at the call site. And when you do more of that, the chances that some error is going to get bubbled up, hopefully something catches it up the stack, or that some makes it somebody else's problem. Somebody could be you, could be some other developer, whatever the case, right? Maybe you have some exception, global exception handler when where all the things get logged out, whatever it is. The The you have you had fewer errors right, in the programs where the errors were handled at the call site than they were if they were just left to bubble up right, to some other process for handle. That your programs were more correct or at least more resilient to to failure, right, to some certain failure modes than programs where you just let things bubble up. That, that whole understanding, that whole concept, it, it took it takes usually it takes people, it took me a while to wrap my head around and to stop fighting the language. And yes, can you have typed errors? Absolutely. You can say, hey, I can have different kinds of errors. I can have, if I want to capture, if I'm being throttled by a remote system, yeah, I can capture an error, create some sort of custom type and bubble that up. If I don't want to leverage part of the standard libraries mechanisms already, you know, whatever, I can create custom error handling behavior. I can have custom types for certain things, right? I can have all of that richness of the type system, but I just, I have to handle my errors where it happens.
0: And I'm, from my perspective, I've seen code that it's like the choice of do I return a value or, or an error, like that tuple sort of structure is really left up to the developer. And then when you have exceptions combined with that, the lines become incredibly blurred. And stepping from that sandbox into a more concrete set of rails i can imagine for sure how that reduces your overall surface area at the end of the day it may not be fun all the time but
1: do you think about it it simplifies it right there's fewer things to think about if you know that okay anytime i make a call and i'm gonna get that tuple return the error something that satisfies the error interface is usually the last thing that gets returned and then go this. Usually there's a two-value return, especially for when things could go wrong. Sometimes you see three, but it's more common to see two. Whatever the value I'm looking for and the possibility of an error, right? When you see that pattern, there's no question that, oh, this thing returns an error. I need to handle it. It's like automatic, right? And the biggest grab people have with that is they're like, oh, well, now I have all this noise in my code that makes it harder to see what's actually going on in, in a given code block. I'm like, uh, trust me, you're going to learn to literally read past those things, right? If I'm looking at a few files, I'm navigating a program with multiple Go files in there. Literally, my eyes have learned to sort of skip over the if error, not nil checks. Like I'm looking for the statements where calls are being made. I'm like, I'm following a happy path. So I'm like, okay, the system does this. I, I could have a, a function within a function. There are four calls made and there are four error handling, uh, you know, conditionals in there. My eyes will literally see the four statements. And because I'm, I'm looking for that happy path, what, is, what does this code block do? And then I see what, what gets returned. Only then do I go back and say, okay, when things don't go wrong for this particular call, what are the possible states? What, what could go wrong if I make this call? Oh, if this call is goes wrong, you call some other subsystem, or you log it out, or you send, you you mark your distributed tracing, whatever you want to use your open telemetry call, whatever it is, you indicate some error of some kind, right? Then I'm like, okay, now I can start seeing how you choose to handle when things don't go right and things don't always go right. So that's the value, that's the beauty of that way of doing things. Could you write your go and ignore all errors? Yeah, you could but you'd be shooting yourself in the foot and you'd be basically not taking advantage of one of the biggest values of the language, which is really handle the possibility of errors because errors will happen.
0: They will have, they, it's not if. It's not if, it's when. <laughs> it's when and I mean, you can type your errors and we're going to get into some of the new updates that ha- have come into go in the past year. Before we do that, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. So go ahead and try it for free at LogRocket.com today. So Johnny, if we're talking about typing errors, one thing that is very useful in typing are generics. And I know that's a new thing that's come out in Go. Do you think we could delve into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the <laughs> when folks talk about generics and go because of the history of go and go's lack of generics, the the you get you get a couple of different camps when it comes to generics. When we talk about Go, you have the people that, prior to the introduction of generics, all right, and I, th- I don't think generics was in the language the last time I was on the show, but since then it certainly has had that added. But and you get those people that basically that used to criticize Go for the lack of generics, right? As a primary sort of modern quote unquote modern language feature, like okay, I can't use Go because primarily it doesn't have generics and other things. And then you have people that say I would only use generics, or I would rather, I would use Go if it had generics. Because there's some things I want to do. I have very specific use cases that generics would lend itself well to. And once the language has those things, I will start using it, which I think is the more sensible approach. Because you actually have a use case that you want to address with the language. And once the feature is added, you're like, okay, great. Now I can actually. The idea that I want to bring forward, that I envision, I can bring that to to the fore because now the language allows me to do that. Very sensible, and I respect that. What I find interesting is that you had a lot of folks that had never used the language really for anything other than a hello world, criticizing the language for the lack of generics. And again, like I don't want to sound uh, um, like I'm like I'm blaming those folks. And I'm not. I mean, if folks were in one of those camps, I'm not using a Shroud language because it doesn't have a feature I really love. What like, and I've heard those uh, comments before in the past. What I usually tell them is like, okay, could you at least try? The language, right? Using the mechanisms that that it does have in lieu of generics, and there were basically three ways of doing that, right? There was, it was basically was writing a lot of boilerplate code to handle different types, right? So imagine you have a sum function, and prior to generics, if you wanted to sum integers and you wanted to sum also floats, you'd have had to create two separate functions, like a, maybe a sum ints and a sum floats, right? To basically handle the different types of lists of numbers that you want to sum. To basically, you could only do it, okay, for integers, I'm going to have one function, and for floats, I'm going to have another function. But the body of the function would have been virtually the same, right? You're iterating through the list and you're accumulating a sum and then you return that value, right? But that value had to be of the type, right, of the numbers that you're sending in. So if I'm sending in integers, I have to return an integer back. So I couldn't support both floats and integers on the same sum function. So I had to create two separate versions. You need to thread it through. Right, exactly. Either it's two separate versions of that function. So that's a boilerplate approach. And keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it because generics is something very interesting with that boilerplate. So the second approach was to use the empty interface. The empty, empty interface in Go basically means there's no type information, right? You can get to the underlying type. When I pass this particular, when I call, when I invoke a function and I pass in that, that argument, You basically you can say, hey, I want, the, you know, in the parameter, in a, in a signature of the function, I want this parameter to basically to be of type empty interface, which means no type information. So I, I can't tell whether it's an integer or flow, whatever it is, based on the function signature alone. Now, when I invoke my, my function, I could pass in a list of integers, I could pass in a list of floats, right? But inside of my sum function then, right, even though I have one function, right? But because I'm receiving a list of empty interface, basically meaning a list of things that have no type information on, a, on their face, right? in the signature. Inside of the function, now I had to do a type switch to figure out, okay, let me get to the underlying type of whatever it is I'm currently iterating on, right? So now I'm like, okay, if this is an integer... Right, I have a value that initially has to be an integer, right? Um, then I'm going to accumulate that in, inside of a inside of my integer. If it's a float, then I'm going to accumulate that inside of a float. And then my return is also now of of an empty interface type, right? And then on the call side, now I have to cast that down. I have to convert that value back down to either, either an integer or a float, right? So I'm doing all this gymnastics. To get around the fact that I couldn't specify the different types that I wanted to in the function signature, right? And in, in, in the parameters of the function. So keep that in mind. That's the other aspect of that generics solves. The third approach was to use reflection, which means at runtime, not a compile time, at runtime, you're gonna be like inferring and using the reflection library package in the standard library to fit, to to get at to some underlying details. But it's it's a very like in the Go community, we tend not to rely on sort of reflection too much, unless you're building a framework where you have to rely on that. It's that runtime sort of type digging investigation. It's not great for writing sort of regular day to day sort of business logic. So we usually tell people like, look, avoid a reflection whenever possible, right? But those are what the three ways, probably generics. When we think of the Russian generics, basically Go says, hey, you now can have what's called parametric polymorphism. So what that means is that I can basically say, okay, I'm going to have one sum function. Now I'm going to specify some type parameters. I'm basically going to say, hey, I want to have one sum function, but the types that this sum function can actually work with, right, the types that it supports can be either an integer or a float. So now you've defined what the supported types are within your sum function. Now, when you invoke your f- sum function, whether you pass in a list of integers or a list of floats, right, the compiler does you a solid. Back to that boilerplate stuff we were talking about before. It, the compiler will literally create different versions of your function for you. So rather than you having to create some ints and some floats, the com- at compile time, the compiler is actually gonna create those versions of the functions for you. You as a developer, your programming experience remains nice because the only thing you've done is you define a, a generic sum function, specifying the types that it supports, right? When you invoke the function, right, due to some inference that happens in the, at compile time as well, you don't have to say, oh, I'm invoking this function with a list of ints. You don't have to specify the type of the things you're passing in. Go can infer those things for you, making your experience of using that some function no different from than you used to. The, the That value, the compiler gives me a solid basically by by creating those versions for me and c- keeping my developer experience like a, a very nice one without having to worry. So I've used generic library code without having to know that the code is generic. And that's the beauty. Of, that is the, one of the major reasons why it took some time to get generics into the language because the the basically the community and the language designers wanted to make sure that using your usage of Go didn't change because generics was introduced. And that's exactly what happened. Generics was introduced. Right. And nobody had to change the way they write Go. Now you just had another tool and a tool belt to say, Hey, I'm writing a lot of boilerplate here. Right. And the only thing that's different is the type that I'm sending in, the type of value that I'm sending in. Perfect opportunity for creating a generic version of this particular behavior or this particular piece of code. Right. And now you have this tool to do it. Right. The basic, biggest sort of takeaway from the introduction generics really is that parametric polymorphism capability.
0: It almost, speaks volumes to the language if the if the creators are making this decision about do we we can but should we because is it going to change the ethos of the language and the way that you model things in your head because of course you can I guess everybody's known you could do this I'm sure people had their own little generic rappers out there but if you're coming in to go you have to make sure you understand that you're not changing the way you write it so you went over three general ways, I was jotting them down as as you were listing them off. The first one sounded like almost like you're writing separate versions of your functions, almost like you're overloading them. Uh, the second one was did you say it was an empty return type, almost like a void, so you can
1: it's 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 yeah, exactly. So it was the type information, right, for the list you are sending in. You use think of the alias for the empty interface for people who have some passing familiarity with the go, it's the, literally is a keyword interface with an empty braces next to it, right? Basically the alias for that is any. <laughs> so and I'm sure you've come across and the term any or the keyword any in other programming languages. It literally says any type will do. <laughs> so that's exactly what it is. The problem is, you then have to do some work to figure out okay, this any type, I really know it's an integer under the hood. So now I have to do some conversion on when, when I'm working with it.
0: It's almost like an escape hatch from the compiler and you're accepting responsibility there exactly yeah you just let's say tell the compiler hey like i'm gonna take responsibility for the
1: type the underlying type of this value don't do tap checking for me don't do compile time check check don't yell at me please you know i'm taking responsibility
0: and the third one you mentioned was using reflection which is like an internal thing which gets the metadata from the runtime but not advised for the majority of
1: not, no, not for your day to day. I can definitely see the use for it and have seen the use for it. And when you're building like frameworks or ORMs or anything of that nature where you need to elaborate, that's really general purpose kind of thing. The things that I'm sure, you know, with the advent of generics, um, Generics is probably going to be more suited for a lot of those use cases, but there's still some places where you know reflection is the right approach, right? It's just not something that if I see that doing day to day line of business, you know, a developer opens a PR to do something very simple and I see generic you know, reflection in there, I'm probably going to say, uh, can we not? <laughs> I know, I know, I know it's cool, I know it's cool, I know it's clever, but uh, yeah, can we not? Right? Let like, do it the quote unquote long way, right? Because listen. I'm going to, sorry, it's at the end of the day, if I get paged at three o'clock in the morning and I have to wake up and go on a computer and see what's going on, right? I, don't, I don't want to be because somebody was being you know, clever and they didn't test for a particular edge case, right? Like things like that, I'm like, ah, I'd rather be the long verbose way as opposed to the, you know, the, the clever
0: way. So it seems like when the compiler takes a, what we're calling a generic and this new version of Go, this new flavor that's coming out, it does the first method that we talked about, ultimately, it just does it for us.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just creates those world-based for you. Then, you know, Go calls that instantiation, right? So you'll instantiate different versions of your function for you, and then under the hood, the right version is going to get called ba- based on type inference.
0: Uh, so, Johnny, being somebody who has worked with Go for so long, you've done things your way for so long, and the ways the Go community has done for so long, what is your personal take on generics? and? how people are going to interact with it. That's a big smile. So I know there's more than just this is 100% good.
1: Yeah, I guess my dirty little secret is that even though the generics has been the language for two major versions now, it's not a go-to for me. I'm not reaching for it. It could be because the surface area, the kinds of things that I'm working on, hasn't doesn't create a surface area for that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not going out of my way to look for opportunities to use generics. So it's one of those things where I don't, I don't design my systems around types. I don't do type-first development. Like I'll introduce a new type or a new domain object or I'll introduce something new when I need it, right? Like I've, done, I've been doing this long enough to know that, okay any sort of design system you try to have ahead of time to uh, to anticipate a particular business need or something like that, you end up having to change those, refactor those. You end up, like, all that sort of a, a reusability, a reusable code that you're trying to write without an actual use case for where it is actually reused, all that stuff ends up getting thrown away. It, at worst, it becomes technical debt in your system because you don't know what you don't know yet. So t- to me, unless like I have a real use case for generics. I'm not gonna try and anticipate and design types around oh let me, if I only use this, then I could make a i can have a generic function where you know I can pass in different things like to process transaction if I know a transaction could be an a c h transfer or versus a credit card debit or whatever I can try and create some abstractions around these things like I'm like no. Me, I need to see something repeated at least twice, maybe even three times. I don't mind copying. A little bit of copying is better than a little bit of d- dependency. So rather than create some abstraction, because what usually ends up having, or what do you do? Like you create some sort of library or package that you intend to reuse in other places. You're going to sprinkle everywhere. So if you're doing that ahead of time, in a way, you know, you're facilitating that through the use of generics or some other mechanism, just to anticipate the need for reusable code unless you've actually unless you actually have a use case that where you get to actually reuse this code two or three times unless you actually have that use case i call that premature optimization so to me generics falls in that category if you're trying to create things ahead of time using generics because you think you're going to need them that's called premature optimization and in this case you're trying to like prematurely optimize understanding of a of your business or your problem domain and trying to think okay if this thing could probably do this thing if i twist its arm this particular way like all of that if i see that in a new project I'm gonna I'm gonna raise eyebrows. And if I see generics in that, I'm gonna raise eyebrows.
0: You have to design for the right now. Yeah, exactly.
1: N- not to say you can't design a system. You don't, you shouldn't think in terms of architecture and all these things. You 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 don't design yourself into a box be- before you know what that box shape is, you know, or right how big the box is gonna be, right? And more appropriately. You don't say, I know we could eventually we'll need to fit a fridge in there in this box, right? So I'm gonna build today. Start starting. I'm gonna build the box with those dimensions in hand. When really the only thing you need is to put a toaster in there, right? Right now, so it's like don't don't design ahead of time, right? Or rather think about the system how it will evolve, right? Don't but don't solve problems you don't have yet.
0: Now, Johnny, I know you have a course. It's called Go in Three Weeks. Is that correct? That is correct. Is generic something that you have roped into that course? And what of the teachings and speakings? that we rambled on today, maybe about the bigger 10,000-foot view about generics and how we're using it.
1: I, I do teach a course regularly now. On, it's kind of part of O'Reilly, sort of always-on, if you will, I'm sort of trainings. I teach it at least three or four times a, a year. So if you are interested in learning Go, and I'm not saying that because I'm trying to entice your audience to, to sign up, although if they do, that's fine too. The In, in that training, I, I try to give a fair evaluation beyond teaching you that, hey, this is an important part of the language recently added, teaching people, okay, this is what it used to be. This is what pre-generic states look like. This is what post-generic states looks like. And these are the do's and don'ts. This is is when you should use it kind of thing. I try to provide a grain of salt with that, basically saying, it's cool. It's a nice feature. And there are some use cases where it allows you to write very elegant, very nice pieces of code. It's great. But I've seen some. I've seen some pretty gnarly things done with generics because you can, because types can be inferred, and you can have. You can definitely program your way into a corner. So don't again. Same advice. Don't design, Don't solve solutions around types. Don't define the world before you start solving problems. Solve problems, and then if you start noticing repetition, if you start noticing a lot of boiled bait, right? The telltale sign that you could use generics is I have the same function. That accepts different types of things, but the bodies of those functions is virtually the exact same. That's a telltale sign that you could use generics because the only thing that's really different is the type. Hence, the whole polymorphic param- parametric, rather parametric polymorphism. You want to be able to support multiple types within this given function, and the only thing that's different, really, everything works the same. The only thing that's different is the type. Then, yes, perfect use case for generics for that language feature. And honestly, regardless of the new features added to the language, We've been talking about generics because it's a target-rich <laughs> environment, so to speak. But any feature you add to the language, really, uh, I'd say, don't go and refactor your entire world to use a new language feature. It's that's foolish. <laughs> if something solves a problem for you, great. Maybe for if you're going to sit down and refactor things while solving a business problem that comes up in the future, if you want to go back and hey, while I'm in here, why don't I also clean this up, kind of thing? Great. But don't go refactor your entire, and, and you might introduce more bugs than you bargained for.
0: And in general, if people were to look at the Go three weeks course, I mean, Go can be a daunting language when you're looking at it. Do you usually find that if you're getting all the way down to the point where you know how to break the rules, you know the rules so you can break the rules, sort of like how they say in music to the point where you can use generics. um, Do you find people kind of get to that point at the end of the three weeks?
1: At the end of the three weeks, I usually get two kinds of students. Over the years, I've experienced that I can distill it down to those basically two kinds of students. You have the students that really, really want to use Go. They've done some tutorials on their own. They've watched some YouTube videos, read some articles, and they really want to use it. Maybe they use it on some side project. And they're like, okay, I need to know what I don't know. I need to know what to look out for. I need to know what some gotchas are. Like, I need to level up, right, in, in my Go journey, right? And they stumble on my training. They're like, oh, great, I can do this over the course of three weeks, one one once a week for three weeks, three hours a pop. It's just nice, sizable, di- digestible, not too short that you forget the moment you walk out of class, but not too long that it takes up your entire day. So you do that for three weeks and you walk out of there thinking, okay, great. Now I have, even though I, I, I didn't know I could use certain language features, yay, thanks Johnny for showing me I can do these things. Even though I didn't know how to use concurrency, yay, you've shown me examples, practical examples of how to use things. Like you show me some gotchas, some do's and don'ts. Great. Like they feel comfortable knowing where sort of the glaring things are going to come out at them and day one, but also how to spot. And to me, that's more important than the actual thing that I'm teaching. I'm teaching them how to identify problems, how to look for and then smell weirdness. Again, the whole idioms thing, especially the idioms are very strong they carry weight within the Go community, All right, There's a certain way you could write Go code that other Go developers are going to look at just, ah, uh, maybe don't write it that way. Try to follow this pattern instead. So those idioms I try to teach in a class, that way, when those folks start doing Go for real, they start writing Go like other Go developers. And that allows you to get assimilated and start writing Go code. Like honestly, sometimes I look at Go code that was written by a Go newbie, and I couldn't tell the difference with the Go that was written from a veteran. Because they follow the idioms. And that's exactly what you want. You want that sort of consistency across projects. You want that consistency across sort of ways of writing Go code. The other kind of students are those that are looking for reasons (laughs) why they want to stick to what they're already doing or they want to not choose Go. So I've literally had people who follow up with me afterwards and say, hey, great class. The training was superb, but I still don't like Go because it, it doesn't offer me X, Y, and Z. And it's usually because of some feature that they have in a language that they won't be able to do the same thing in Go. Or maybe sometimes it's the, like, the saddest ones are the ones who come and say, hey, you know what, the I love Go, but I can't use it at work because my VP or your engineering director doesn't want to like it because of X, Y, and Z. I'm like, you should have them attend the training. <laughs> I can I can help persuade them that this is a good thing. So yeah, you have those different kinds of students. By far the ones I enjoy the most are the ones that basically know they need to level up. They just don't know what they don't know yet. And there's just so much content out there. It's hard to you just need something like that is thought thought through enough that gives you all the bits and pieces that what to worry about, what not to worry about. Like I think a lot of times people attend my classes because they want to know what to ignore more so than anything else. And I approach it that way. I say, hey, you need to go. There's a lot of stuff out there. You don't know where to start. These are the things to worry. You worry about. Listen, I've been doing go for many years now, and consistently, these are the things that matter the most. So they just look for that advice, right? So if that's if that's you and you want, you know, attend the class and and sort of really unearth what matters most in the world of go, definitely check out the class.
0: Johnny, thanks for your time today, coming on. Where can people find you? Do you have a Twitter?
1: yeah it's a first initial last name so j-b-o-u-r-s-i-q-u-o-t on twitter and these days twitter is a little of an odd place um, you know with everything going on but there's the mastodons of the world and then the blue skies of the world these things coming into the fore but yeah twitter is probably going to be sort of a jump off point uh, if you want to follow me you know if you want to check out my link then all these other things you know twitter is probably a good jump off, jump off point
0: awesome thanks again johnny it was a pleasure